Welcome to Series 2 of the All Things Mental Health podcast. I'm your presenter, Aniska. In this series, we'll be opening up different topics of conversation around mental health in young minds with an array of mental health professionals, researchers, activists, writers, policymakers, psychologists, and many more. Today, we're delighted to have Natasha Devon with us. Natasha is a writer and activist, and she's currently doing a Saturday night LBC show. Uh, She tours schools, colleges, universities around the world, delivering talks as well as conducting research on mental health. In this episode, Natasha and I will be discussing the importance of navigating mental health from a young age. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. So welcome. Thank you for having me. First up, it would be great to hear about your work in these educational institutions a little bit more and in particular what this work entails. So there's there's two aspects really to the work that I do in schools. I, I go into an average of three schools a week. Obviously, that's virtually at the moment. But uh, before the pandemic, I would travel all over the world and I deliver talks, but I also conduct research focus groups with predominantly 13 to 18 year olds, although I do sometimes work with younger children and older students than that. But the bulk of my work is with teenagers. And the aim of the research is to discover what's missing from their PSHE programs that is related to mental health. And in particular, those kind of everyday universal mental health issues Things like exam stress, body image anxiety, problems with social media, problems with friendship and bullying, um, and also things to do with identity, so race, sexuality, gender. And then I take that research and I use a, I've got a panel of different experts that I work with in neuroscience, psychology, psychiatry, who give me some scientific input so that I know everything that I'm saying is robust because I'm very aware particularly right now actually of how much scientific misinformation is spread and when it comes to health how important it is to get it right so so they give me the the scientific basis and I use that to create lesson plans so my job is I suppose to translate the science into something that is engaging for a teenage audience And I share my lesson plans with various different charities and organizations and and individuals, as well as delivering them myself. So it's a bit of a made up job, um, but I've been doing it for since 2008. So for it'd be 13 years in September. Yeah, I'm actually quite old now. When I first started doing this, all the teenagers were like, oh, you remind me of my sister. And now it's always, you remind me of my auntie. I'm like the (laughs) cool auntie. (laughs) Like, okay, I'll take that. Fine. (laughs) The, the lessons that I actually offer change regularly, but I'll talk you through the ones that I do right now. So there's one on um, social media. Social media should work for you. So how do you regulate your relationship with it, ensure that you're spending the amount of time you want to spend on it, understanding how it works behind the scenes, and also curating your feed so you're not in an echo chamber, but you're also not being exposed to ideas that are potentially triggering or toxic or anxiety producing. So that's one of the ones I do. And I do one on anxiety and stress management, which I've adapted to be particularly pertinent to COVID. So how do you manage anxiety during a time of uncertainty when you don't know what the future is going to to look like. 
Um, then there's one that's based on the book that I wrote about exams and mental health, because what young people don't understand, or certainly a lot of them don't understand, is that the things you do to look after your mental health also make you cleverer. So you, you don't have to choose between your grades and your mental health. That's a false dichotomy that I think a lot of them buy into. So it's it's looking at things that you can do that will improve your retention of information, your ability to think creatively and problem solve and focus and concentrate. They also have a benefit for your well-being. And then finally, I do one on identity and mental health, which looks at the patterns we see in various groups in society. So for example, um, you see patterns in mental health with Black, Asian and mixed race people more likely to be diagnosed with a severe mental health issue, but less likely to see a positive outcome from treatment. LGBTQ plus people more likely to self-harm. Um, women are more likely to attempt suicide, but men are more likely to complete suicide. So we just take a few of those kind of verifiable statements. And then it's a discussion as to why is this happening? What is it about the experience of being black in Britain, for example, that means that this would be the outcome for you if you experienced a mental health issue. And how do you find these students respond to that, that part of the lesson plan in particular? So that is for, I recommend it for year 11, probably at the youngest, and then it's a very sixth for me um, lesson, I would say. And I, I always say to them, look, that when we're talking about, because there's a part in it about how your brain takes in information and how you can absorb ideas from your environment. So no one thinks they're racist or sexist or homophobic, but sometimes you can pick up sexist, racist, homophobic ideas just from how often they're repeated in your environment. And you don't realize that that an and unconscious bias, I think, exists, but we shouldn't allow the, the concept of unconscious bias to let us off the hook. So when we have these reactions, it's our responsibility to go, why do I think that? Or why did I respond that way to that person? So I say to them, look, you know, everything about the science that I've worked in, in conjunction with proper experts to bring that to you, the stuff about society is my opinion. And we can, you know, and we can totally debate that. So then if I'm in, I don't know, an all girls school in London, they're always like, yes, everything you said. But then, you know, it, there are other, <laughs> there are other schools that I'm in where, you know, they're they're not they don't agree, which you know, which is fine. And and I get asked questions like, you know, do I think that white men are the new persecuted minority? And um, yeah, you know, these kind of YouTube ideas. And I think it's really good that they can discuss that with me, or they feel that they can put that to me, and we can discuss it in a kind of rational way exactly and it also it gives them a platform that is comfortable for them to bring their like you said their comments to you and then also form a dialogue with their peers because the whole problem here is if it gets boxed up and doesn't actually get discussed then that creates other problems you don't actually deal with you know, these biases you may have or like working out rhythms to also unlearn and then absorb information around you i think this issue as well is the fact that from a young age these things are just not discussed they're not formed as part of important parts of your PSHG, they transition you through. So consequently, you come out of education unaware, for example, on this note of diversity and identity-based aspects of the lesson plan, that you don't, you know, you're not aware, one, of those particular experiences of the different minorities, but also how to respond to those and how your own prejudices and ideas also interact with that. 
So having spaces that are mm. young, that are safe to bring ideas to and collectively learn together uh, and actually understand it just means that it's something you can really take forward with you when you interact with all these different people growing up. You know, you, you start to understand the world around you that bit better, which is in a life mm. that becomes really useful and transitional as you move forward. And I do think that there is a, there are conversations that happen at cross purposes, because if you are a woman or if you are a person of color, the chances are you've experienced so much prejudice and you recognize it so quickly, even when it's a microaggression or something that seems fairly innocuous to somebody who hasn't been on the receiving end of it, that you do get to a stage where you're just like, oh, sexism or racism. And then the other person doesn't know what they've done wrong. And I always like to come from a a point of view, or I try very hard to come from a place of maybe they're genuinely curious and maybe they're not going, oh, I should just be able to behave however I want and screw everyone else. You know, maybe actually they don't know what they've done wrong and they would like to know and, and have it explained to them in a way that is is kind and giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's the only way you're going to make people better as well. It's the only way you're going to create a society that is harmonious that feels equal is if you feel like one, you can express what's internally going on for you and then actually have a space to talk about it. Yeah. So that's the only way to improve. So that's there from a really young point, you know, and that's really important because we all know as you go through those chapters growing up, you really need that space to talk about the issues that you have going on in your head, different opinions you might have and the environment around you really needs to be supportive to allow you to grow in that. So that's great. That's there. I also really love to hear about what you were saying in relation to social media. Yeah. Because one thing I've been hearing from lots of different uh, students, so as you know, I'm, I'm a master's student, and I've been as I've been going through the different hurdles of education, hearing people respond differently to their social media and realizing the importance of tailoring it so that it is something that is a space that stimulates them, that is that it is engaging, and how how you can really do that and learn to control it. Um, and you like we said, it can be in many ways a really lovely kind of a mirror of what you're interested in that you think about regularly that is then there for you to explore. So again, having that from a young age is super vital right now, especially one, as social media is such a big part of people's lives. But also now it's the only platform you can really engage with in a COVID world that is interactive and that's still kind of happening and open and dynamic. You know, it's not in person. So in that sense, it's something that they can also find the benefits of that really quickly because they're using social media all the time. It can really change their mindset to it. Yes. And I think we're too often, uh, we'll go to the negative impacts of social media, which are absolutely real and very concerning. But I always take the, I always try and start from where young people are. And most young people tell me, no one's ever talking about the positives, uh, the fact that I can plug into a community of people who get me, or I can always connect with someone and, or, you know, access information. And I also am very aware that it's not going anywhere. So we can have <laughs> these debates about how awful it is, but it's more useful, I think, to try and give them some tools to use it in a way that works for them. And it, you know, even for adults, and again, this is something that COVID has really crystallized for me. There is, there's no, there doesn't seem to be any gray area between accepting a point of view because it's come from somebody who seems vaguely doctor-like or there's a graph, right? <laughs> or 
not accepting anything. So at, at the, the other side of that, you have the conspiracy theorists who will question, you can show them so much evidence and they go, no, you know, you obviously work for the lizards or, you know, or whatever it is. And having that critical ability, and it's happened to me a couple of times where I've seen something about, let's say, herd immunity, which has now been kind of thoroughly debunked. You cannot, with COVID, achieve herd immunity through everyone getting the virus. The, co the cost would be too much. And also it wouldn't give us herd immunity. Um, but, you know, I've seen people sharing stuff and they're like, oh, it's from Professor such and such at this university. And here's a graph. And I'm like, have I got this wrong? But then I've had to go and look up. And, and yes, he is a professor, but he's a professor of physics or something, you know, so not, not necessarily qualified in this area has a track record maybe of being a little bit controversial for for the sake of it um and it's that kind of thing the ability to kind of check your sources but not to the extent where you immediately disbelieve everything and that's a really fine line to tread because social media can actually be a really great source of information <laughs> And it's knowing, you know, which is which is the good stuff, really. And, and also, I think it's really important to have some people in your social media uh, accounts that you follow who are politically not aligned with you or say things that you wouldn't agree with. And the difference is, are they coming from a place of being thoughtful about it? So that, you know, there are conservative MPs that I follow, and it will come as a surprise to no one that my politics tend to, to fall left of centre. But, uh, you know, sometimes you have to work cross-party with like-minded people when you're creating policies, and there are some decent, good conservatives out there. And whilst I won't agree with a lot of what they say, I know that they've thought about it, and they're coming from a, a kind of rational place. They're not just saying stuff for the sake of being controversial. No, exactly, exactly. And that's something that you actually get taught, which is really interesting. So I've been engaged with different character development projects at Oxford in relation to different research. And the, when they talk to students, this is what they say, engaging with the people who disagree with you is really important. Because, you know, you again, you learn how to interact with those people, you learn to understand what they're doing, and you actually they can give you a lot more a lot of the time than someone who's exactly the same as you. So again, bringing that in early is, is really good too. Um, so in, in, in relation to these different educational spaces then that you engage with, what was it that you thought required a shift in relation to thinking and focusing on mental health? Well, for me, it was, it was about making the mental health conversation universal because when I was at school, it was in the 90s and that was very much the era of mental health was being talked about, but it was, you had your assembly from somebody who had lived experience, usually of an eating disorder or addiction. Those, those were kind of the big topics and they were really interesting. And don't get me wrong, there is absolutely a place for that with, within education. But if that's all the information you get about mental health, if it's confined to mental illness, you don't know whether or not it's going to happen to you. So you go, well, it probably won't. And then you don't kind of apply it to yourself. And I thought, we don't do that with physical health. It, you know, there, there's, and the more I've thought about this over the years, the more useful I think it is to compare the way we talk about physical health with mental health, because you've got your fitness or your health maintenance, your kind of fresh air, exercise, drinking water, which we understand won't necessarily prevent us ever becoming ill, but it's good practice. And then you've got your universal 
uh, physical health issues that all of us experience, like colds and flus and stomach bugs and cuts and scrapes and things like that. And then you've got things which require medical intervention. And mental health is just the same. And I suppose my work is, is focused in that middle area of what are the mental health equivalents of colds and flus and stomach bugs. They still affect your ability to function. So it's sort of trying to get it in the prevention stage. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, mental health underpins everything that you do. Mm. So that you know, it's so important to be able to learn the fact that it can manifest itself in very different ways. But it doesn't mean that just because, you know, if you're not experiencing something severe on that spectrum, that it's not there. Consequently, it still is. So how do you learn how to how to deal with that, really, and, and actually engage with it? I think this is what's really key is, is what's amazing about this, this program that you offer, especially these lesson plans in particular, is understanding mental health as a space from a young age. Like what is that? What does it mean? You know, what does it mean in relation to exam stress what does it mean in relation to social media and actually unpacking it properly you know in a very rigorous way from such a young age is then consequently so beneficial because as you grow up yourself one you become more aware you know of your own problems that start to might arise you oh, I actually understand this a bit more I've been given some tools to help me understand this or when you interact with others again your understanding is better so it's, it's really providing you with a really vital thing from a point that it, it'll just kind of propel you to keep engaging in that space more, which is which is great. And I also think it's important to understand what your normal is, because unlike physical health problems, a lot of them with mental health, they're not visible. So you, you need to understand what normal is for you and what healthy feels like for you mentally in order to understand when you're veering into a space that's not normal or, or not healthy for you because it, comparing yourself to others on something that's so kind of intangible and invisible can be really difficult and that whenever I look at vulnerability criteria or symptoms for mental health issues I'm like well some of these are just me on a bad week and I know that now but if I'd have seen that 10 years ago I'd have been diagnosing myself with all sorts you know exactly. it's basically encouraging you to be curious then about your own mental health and that's really important and and again like you said it can't be a comparison game because everyone's mental health is different Mm. every person in their headspace is a completely different space so this is really good because it again encourages you to work out what you know so what that is for you i think this is half the problem and uh, you know the issue is as you go through these different stages of education when something might shift from your apparent normal to something else you don't really understand what that is you don't understand that you had a normal or you don't understand what the shift is doing and by this point you know it, it's a bit dangerous because you haven't got any kind of grounding to support you or understand so you know being able to actually find ways from a really early age to navigate that space like we said is is really vital um and is is, is really useful really because like we said if it underpins everything that you do then consequently you can keep coming back to it anyway so having that from right from the start is going to just be useful for absolutely everything that you get engaged with from your work to your family, your relationships. And also as certain spaces start to develop in new ways, you get then have some toolkit to respond. So for example, social media, I'm sure there'll be developments in social media we can't even think of now that start to happen mm. in however many years time. You know, being able to know from, from right from the beginning, from the get go, as you start to engage with your phone in that way, that you start to think about, okay, as the space develops in different ways, I know what I like from it. I know what I don't quite like. I know how to make it healthy, which again is, is, is really useful. So through your work in different stages of education then, so from schools, colleges to universities, 
you must really see the transitional issues which are then moving from one institution to the next for different people. Mm. And it really highlights the importance then of, like we said, navigating mental health in young minds really early to then really help with these different chapters of change that happen for people. I think it's about, again, understanding what's supporting your mental health whilst you are in one place and then thinking about how you're going to replicate that at the next stage. So, uh, you know, look, thinking about, the move to university you might in sixth form or in college be a member of a sports team and unbeknownst to you that's giving you a sense of belonging and community and it's exercise which is really good for your mental health etc etc that's one of your cornerstones of your self-care but then you wouldn't necessarily think when you get to university oh I need to find something to replace that as regularly so one of the things that I uh, I encourage people again I wrote about this in my book encourage people who are going to university to think about is what are the things that keep me well and how am I going to find equivalents and sort of going to their university town before not just for the open day but you know at some point before they go to uni and looking at what is actually available and what that that town or city or or space is is like i think having a plan is it's just a really empowering thing actually a lot of mental health issues involve feeling out of control or like you're not you don't have a handle on your life so just the act of writing these things down or having them straight in your head in of itself is, I think, really useful. Definitely. And you really see the impact of what happens if you do go into those spaces with that awareness that wasn't there perhaps when you first had chapters of transition. So that's the hardest is going from, for example, schooling environment to that first step to something new because you don't really, Mm. you don't actually always think about those things. Like you said, there are these pillars of support for you. You had no idea that the football team supported you like that. You didn't know. You just went to it every Saturday. And apparently it provided you with a great space. So then you come into this university setting and again, that sense of isolation. But I find what's particularly interesting about that is that if that happens again for you, so for me, for example, from school, I went to York for my undergrad and then now I'm in Oxford for my master's. And when I've come to the master's point now, I'm like, oh, okay, I've worked out what it is that these things really supported me and helped me. So before I even got to this space, like you said, you've either visited it, you've engaged with the different things that are there. So you start to create this space. You start to make it really joyful for yourself. Mm. And like we said, if mental health then is this complete basis of everything, it's there to really ground you and hold you as you start to propel into other things. Because you've been aware of it, thinking about how to really help yourself. And like we said, again, that basically stems back down to this importance of navigating this really early to then really give you something that you can just keep taking forward and growing with as well. There's lots of evidence to to show that that transition to university is a real vulnerability point from people's mental health point of view. And you've got, I think it's 50% of mental health issues manifest by 14, but then 75% by 21. So you've got that that period of, of 18 to 21, which is obviously important as well. And I think certainly part of that must be this kind of people turn 18 and everyone goes, right, adult now. <laughs> you just yes, like, just I, deal with everything. <laughs> I still have anxiety dreams about my first week at university. Just, I mean, it sounds so silly now, but I'd never been in an environment before where nobody had told me where I needed to be and at what time. 
where, you know, I had to go and find that information. And it's, you know, you're really chucked in at the deep end, which I suppose in some ways is is good, but some people are going to sink and there should be a, a safety net for for those people. So it's, it's really kind of allowing you to sort of create things for yourself to then, you know, really assist you as you move into a space that will also manifest struggles you never thought of. Like you said, you know, I have to navigate my way to X place that I never thought of before because for how many years you knew that, you know, your year six classroom is up the stairs on the right or whatever. <laughs> so it's a whole thing. And then learning how to also say, I don't know, or being, being vulnerable, being openly vulnerable in that space and having people around you to really help you with that. Again, the more comfortable you become with your own headspace, navigating that yourself, you externally will project that out, which one thing was really positive to see from this university experience in these different institutions is really what happens if one person does that, really openly expresses how they feel. And this really positive domino effect of other people also doing the same thing. So again, it can just create this great community of people who are going through real challenges through these chapters of change, for sure. Natasha, thank you so much for taking some time out to chat to us. It's been great to hear about all the work you're doing. Um, and yeah, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you.